Hi, everybody. All right, today we are going on in the book of Daniel. The heavily prophetic chapters are upon us. And, um, you know, I, I used to love Bible prophecy in a way that was probably too much. I came to Christ when I was 18 years old. It was 1972. And the whole world was abuzz with the Jesus movement. Now, my generation grew up under the shadow of a very, very tall mushroom cloud. First exploded uh, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki by the U.S. forces at the end of World War II, and then things got worse. We heard about this bomb called the nuclear bomb, which is even more powerful than the atomic bomb. And then we came to Christ, we started reading the books at the end. Oh, it's all going to end. It makes sense. Because we now have the ability to blow ourselves up. We now actually have the ability to bring about the end. And so we were just obsessed with Bible prophecy. Now, think about uh, generation today, how obsessed it is with social justice, with the poor, with the oppressed, with equality and fairness. Uh, with the slave trade, with sex trafficking. Think about how passionate you all are about that stuff, and you will know how passionate we were about Bible prophecy, my friend, because Jesus is coming back. And so I come to Christ in this very, very dramatic way, and I go back home to my wonderfully blended Brady bunch of a family. And I start talking about how Jesus is coming back and about how all the world events are lining up. And we now have this ability and that ability and there's this happening in the Middle East and there's this happening in Europe and it's all lining up. You know, I had read the late great planet Earth and I knew how the world was going to end. And my stepmother was not amused. My stepmother had been raised in a Bible-believing kind of Heavy faith, little white country clapboard church in southern Ohio, and I inadvertently, coming to Christ, was pressing all of her buttons. All the things that she'd rebelled against, the dogma, the strident belief of her parents' generation that she reacted against, all of a sudden she has her oldest stepchild saying the same thing. She was not pleased, especially because after school, I was going to college, and after work, I spent all my time doing stuff with Christian religious organizations, spreading the word about Jesus Christ to young people, and kind of sort of neglected the chores that we were all supposed to do at home. We had a family of seven children. Like I said, they had three, we had four. They were all blonde-haired, blue-eyed. We were all dark and swarthy and, you know, we didn't look like we went together and they were trying really hard to make us one family. 
and having the oldest set a bad example by not being around because he's too busy with church and then always talking about how Jesus is coming back did not go over well with the parental units. Now, I never forget one time I'm sitting there at the kitchen table and so my stepmother takes this tack. So Michael, Jesus is coming back. I go, yeah, mom, yeah, he's coming back. There's no doubt about it. And probably soon, you're telling me. Oh, yeah, yeah, mom, soon, soon. Things are lining up. So is there any way, Michael, that this may not happen? Absolutely not, mom. The Bible is true, it's accurate, and Jesus is coming back. So you mean to tell me there's nothing you're going to do to change that or I'm going to do to change it? Not a thing, Mom. No president, no king, no ruler is going to change that. My stepmother looked at me and she goes, really? Well then, if Jesus is coming back and it's so sure, let's not worry about it. Go do your chores. Because you haven't cleaned the bathroom like you're supposed to. You haven't swept the living room like you're supposed to. And your room is a mess. And your brother's been complaining to me about it. Because I shared a room with my brother. I got to say that I must have done a 180 sometime in the last decades of my life. Because if you remember, I wasn't sure I wanted to preach the second half of the book of Daniel. Because why? It's all Bible prophecy. And I used to think I knew what was going on, and now I'm not so sure. But we're in good hands tonight because Daniel chapter 8 is one of those chapters where the Bible interprets itself. So you know what it means. So we're going to dive into Daniel chapter 8. You'll see there's a little illustration up there. You've got two odd-looking animals. Uh, one is... Uh, ram on the right, and one horn looks larger than the other. And then on the left there is this goat, except it's an odd goat because it's got a single horn growing out from between its eyes, and it looks like it's going after the ram. We are going to be studying Bible symbols again, and you'll hear about those two animals here in just a second. Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. Now, if you remember correctly, go back a few chapters to Daniel, where King Belshazzar was having a great feast. You remember the Medes and the Persians were outside the city wall trying to get in. They couldn't get in because the walls of Babylon are so thick. But Belshazzar, being so arrogant and sure of himself, decides to have a great feast for all of his nobles. And he brings in the implements from the Jewish temple, the holy objects, and he uses them for everyday purposes, you know, for plates for eating and, and goblets for drinking. And then they praised the gods of silver and gold and all the gods that are not gods while using the implements of the temple of the true God. And then there appears this hand on the wall, writing a message, many, many tickle parson, doesn't know what to do, calls Daniel to interpret it, and Daniel says that basically your time is up, bub. It's over for you. Now, 
This, Daniel chapter 8, happens before that banquet. How could Daniel have been so sure when he went in to talk to King Belshazzar that his reign was coming to an end? Well, because God had given him this vision in chapter 8 and also a vision before that in chapter 7. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. That was the one that Leah talked about last week. Verse 2. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. Now, Daniel's in Babylon, but Susa is not Babylon. Susa is the capital of Persia. So in this vision, he is transported someplace else to the Persian side of things, east of Babylon, by a couple hundred miles. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. i just tell you right now that this ram is a picture of the Medo-Persian Empire. It was on their coins. It was known as one of their symbols. And the fact that one was bigger or longer than the other one meant that the Persian side of things became greater than the Mede side of things. Medes were first. Remember, there was uh, Darius the first. And, uh, and then we have Cyrus the Great, who becomes uh, uh, the Persian side of things. So it's, but it's still basically the same entity. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it was the, uh, the left and the right hand uh, of silver, or the arms of silver. Same geopolitical kingdom, different symbology. All right. In the vision in chapter 7, does anybody remember what it was? It was a bear, right? Lying on its side. So, same kind of things are coming up. In this vision, what God does is God puts a microscope on a slice of the Gentile kingdom's history and is going to explain it to Daniel because this slice is going to affect his people Israel more than the others. Okay. Now look, folks, this is difficult Bible prophecy stuff. Please stay with me. Please stay with me. Um, just because it's not about you doesn't mean God doesn't want you to know about it. All right? All right, here we go. Four, I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. And surely... The uh, Medo-Persian Empire was extremely great for many, many, many decades. We'll go on. Verse 5, as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. This thing is going at lightning speed. This goat is a supernatural goat. It is going at full force, this is important, from the west 
to the east? What nations are to the west of Persia? Does anybody know? Greece, exactly. And, you know, if you know Greeks, they know goats. All right? All right. Nikos, Echi, Ena, Kaziki. All right. Nick has one goat. Okay. We'll go on. <laughs> it's a line from a big fat Greek wedding for those of you who don't remember. Okay, it came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great. But at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. 150 years before, Alexander the Great was known. Daniel was prophesying about this great kingdom that goes across the earth like lightning. One thing about the Greek conquest, it was quick. It had to be quick, because Greeks lose their attention very, very quickly. I think. So um, they go across the whole earth. Alexander was 21 years old when he became uh, the king of the unified Greek city-states, uh, and he had conquered the world in, in a decade. It is said that uh, after he conquered India, uh, that there were no more lands to conquer, and so he wept. He kind of lost himself in an alcoholic haze and contracted malaria, and at 33 years old, he died actually in Babylon at the height of his power. Now, there was some jockeying for position after Alexander died. His wife was killed. His heir, his young, young son, was murdered. And four of his generals rose up to divide up Alexander's kingdom into four separate kingdoms. This is the meaning of the four horns. We'll find out about this later because the Bible tells us what's going on. Verse 9. Out of one of them, out of one of those little horns that replaced the unicorn horn, out of one of them came another horn which started small but grew and powered it to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. But the beautiful land would be Daniel's homeland. It would be the place where the temple is. It would be the place where Israel dwelled, the beautiful land. And so now we have a king who is now focusing on Conquest, and one of those places is ancient Israel. It grew until it reached the host of heaven. In other words, this horn is growing in size and strength. Until it reached the host of heaven and threw down some of the starry host to the ground, to the earth, and trampled on them. Now, later on in Daniel, we'll find out that when he talks about stars very often, he's referring to the holy people of God. We find this in chapter 12, I believe, but I can just tell you about it right now so that you know that whoever this ruler is that comes up ends up killing a lot of Daniel's people. It, this horn, sets itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. 
It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it, over to this horn and its power. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. There is a ruler who comes from the Seleucid part of Alexander's empire. His name, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And he was, I think, one of those antichrists that Leah talked about last week. He was a hater of Jews. He destroyed a large part of Jewish life. He forbid people from being Jewish. You can't do your sacrifices. You can't do your religion. You can't say your prayers. History tells us that Antiochus Epiphanes, who called himself, I believe, um, basically God, the image of God, sets up a statue of Zeus in the temple of God, the Greek god Zeus sets up an image of Zeus, which has as its face, guess whose likeness? Antiochus Epiphanes. And then he sacrifices a pig on the holy altar of God in the temple. A pig. If you know anything about Jews, this is not okay. Now, if you were to come to Scum this morning, to morning service, we had breakfast beforehand, and we had bacon. And the whole place had the aroma of bacon, which was wonderful for Scum of the Earth. Not so good if you're an ancient Jew. To go into the temple and smell burning pig. More than that, he took the pig's blood and he splattered all over every wall and every article and every piece of furniture in the temple to desecrate it. And he took the scriptures and he literally took the truth, threw them down, burned the scriptures, killed 40,000 Jews in three days in Jerusalem, took 40,000 more captive, and sold them off as slaves. This guy hated the Jews. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. What kind of impact do you think this would have on Daniel? A man who loved his homeland. Who longed to be back in the beautiful land. I don't know if you guys remember this or not. Uh, I'm sure you don't. But when I was your age, we had this movie called Planet of the Apes. And I remember the shock and the horror of the last scene in the movie where this thing is coming out of the sand on the beach and you realize it's the Statue of Liberty and that we've been on earth in New York this whole entire time, except in the future. It was horrifying. I mean, you went home going, I can't believe that happened. Man, you know, you couldn't tell your friends because it would spoil the whole movie. And, you know, it was just devastating scene in the movie. That's nothing compared to what Daniel is experiencing at this moment, because that was fiction back in my college days. This is truth from God himself. Verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, 
And another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. I am here to tell you that every single stroke of this prophecy came true well after Daniel wrote it. Even the 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, there is some debate about that. I didn't go into detail this morning, but I've been informed it might be a good idea for me to go into detail about it now. We're not sure how to take the 2,300 evenings and mornings. If you take it as 2,300 full days, then if you, you would start it with the day that Antiochus Epiphanes had the high priest in the Jewish temple assassinated. Take it from that day, the time finally when it, the temple was cleared out and reconsecrated, it would be 2,300 days. Just so you know, the end of that period of time is the Maccabean Revolt. It's about Hanukkah. So when you see Jews celebrate Hanukkah, they celebrate the reconsecration of the temple after the defilement caused by Antiochus Epiphanes. There's a whole story that goes along with that in terms of oil and lamps. I'm not going to go into it right now, but just know that the Jews have celebrated Hanukkah since well before Jesus' time. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Did you know that? So, if you take it as half that number, then it corresponds to the time that Antiochus Epiphanes set up the statue of Zeus in the temple and sacrificed the pig on the altar and did all that business. So we're not sure how to interpret it, but either way you interpret it, it works pretty well. I can tell you that that 2300 evening and mornings has been misinterpreted and abused by many people over the centuries. And ask me about that later if you want to, I'll tell you about one of them, where they thought it was 2300 years. Verse 15. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. This is not any old man. This is a pretty important man. It appears from the actual Hebrew that this is written in. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. Now, here's the odd thing. First of all, it's not just any old man who's standing there. Second of all, the man is standing in between the banks of the Uli River. Actually, it seems that he's suspended above the water in between the banks. That's what it means in the Hebrew. So whoever this dude is, he's kind of supernatural. And he's ordering angels around, namely the angel Gabriel. This, by the way, is the very first time we ever hear the name of the angel Gabriel. Now, if you know your New Testament, you're aware that 500 years from this particular point, the angel Gabriel will make another couple of appearances. One to a man named Zechariah, 
and tell him he's going to have a son, John the Baptist, and then again to a young virgin named Mary who's betrothed to a guy named Joseph. And she, he tells Mary that she's going to birth the Messiah. Same angel, 500 years apart. They don't lose any speed. They don't get old. They're immortal beings. They're around for this whole show. It's interesting that we hear the name of Gabriel here for the very first time. And so this person who is hovering above the waters of the Uli orders Gabriel around. Now, who could that be? We think it's probably Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ. That's what we think. Who else orders angels around? Calls them by name. Jesus, in his eternal state, before his birth, by 500 years, very often, called a theophany, or a Christophany. What do we call it? You go to seminary to learn those words. It costs you a lot to learn those words. A lot of money. Anyway. As he came near the place where I was, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then... He touched me and raised me to my feet. Verse 19, he said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. Now, what end is he talking about? The end of the 2300 mornings and evenings. At least for now. That's what it appears he's talking about. In a little bit, it's not going to be as clear. Stay with me. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns replace that one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. Now he's talking about the horn that rises up. The Antiochus Epiphanes horn, we pretty much believe, is correct. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many. Now, so far, so good, all right? This all sounds like what we have experienced in history with Antiochus Epiphanes. We think we understand the vision. It, it, it's kind of lockstep, and then all of a sudden, things get a little different. Pay attention. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. And he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. 
Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Now we're getting a little strange. Who could the prince of princes possibly be? The only person I know who is the prince of all the princes, either in heaven or on earth, is Jesus Christ. And now you're telling me that Antiochus Epiphanes is taking a stand against Jesus, who wasn't even born for 500 years before, after, until after this prophecy? Sometimes in Scripture, we are introduced to what is known as a dual reference. Okay? Dual reference. Sometimes prophecies pertain to something near, but they can also pertain to something far. This happens with a lot of the prophecies around Jesus' birth and the coming of the Messiah, and it's happening right here again. So imagine, you know, a mountain range, okay? And you're looking at one mountain, and it's just this big, giant mountain, and all you can see is that mountain. What you don't realize is, is right behind this mountain, hidden to your field of vision, is another mountain, which might even be larger. That's what's going on here. I think what the Bible is doing here, this is my opinion, is it's getting us ready for the end, the Antichrist, who is to come, and saying he'll be a lot like Antiochus Epiphanes. If you paid attention to Leah last week, you'll know that it seems the devil tries to come up with an antichrist for every generation because he doesn't know which generation is the last generation. He hates the Jews. He hates God's people. So that stays the same. He just always is trying to get somebody in power who can do his will, which is to kill God's holy people and set himself up as the ruler of the world. And so we're given a hint in Daniel chapter 8 that at the end of the age, when this is all over, someone very much like Antiochus Epiphanes will come along and do very similar things. As a matter of fact, when you look at the life of Jesus and you hear him talking, he uses the same language. He says, now listen, people in Jerusalem, when you see the desolation that causes abomination. Now I want you to flee to the hills. He's using the same language as Daniel does to talk about something that's going to happen not in the past, but in the future. An Antichrist will be coming. This is what you can do. What's not as bad as it has to be for you. And it says, yet he'll be destroyed, but not by human power. This has the double fulfillment as well. Antiochus Epiphany dies not by, he's not murdered by one of his courtiers. He isn't slain in battle. Rather, he has some kind of weird bowel disease. I guess he stunk to high heavens. People didn't want to be around him. And Antiochus Epiphanes dies not by human hand. And the Antichrist, it says, will be felled by the words that come out of Jesus' mouth. Boom, he's done. Verse 25. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true. 
Let's seal up the vision where it concerns the distant future. In other words, keep it safe, seal it up, get it ready for people who are going to need it later on. Like, you're not going to understand this, Daniel. It's really not for you. It's for other people. 27. I, Daniel, was worn out. No kidding. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Now, I've got a little uh, picture of a coin I want you to see. Next slide. This is a coin uh, minted during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. If you look, there's a Greek inscription, got the uh, translation, or a translation, I'm not sure it's the same translation I would give it, but Antiochus, image of God, bearer of victory, is how they decided to translate it here. A man who would set himself up as God. A man who would set himself up as God. He was trying to be the next Alexander and rule the whole entire world. One minor problem it's called the Romans. The Roman Empire was rising and on its way. Remember it says in the latter part of the days of those kings, one horn. Well, it was latter because the Romans were starting to take dominance. Matter of fact, Antiochus uh, conquered Egypt once, didn't quite make it all the way to Alexandria and conquered Alexandria. So he's going back a second time, but this time he's met by the Roman army. And <laughs> the Roman general uh, they had these talks. The Roman general uh, asked him, what are you going to do? Like, are you going to turn around and leave, or are you going to fight us? Because you know we're going to wipe you out. And Antiochus doesn't want to give him an answer. So the Roman general draws a circle around Antiochus in the sand and says, before you leave the circle, you give me an answer. <laughs> and so Antiochus, coweringly, okay, fine. Nah, that's okay. I, I won't attack you guys. I, I don't need Egypt. I'll just go back where I came from. Sorry. You know, it's all good. And then he's so pissed off because he's been so humiliated. That's when he goes back and destroys Jerusalem the way he does. Because he's so upset. Anyway, enough about Antiochus. The Greeks had a name for him. Actually, the Jews had a name for him. Uh, they didn't call him Antiochus Epiphanes, which means uh, illustrious one. Um, they, they called him Epimenes, Epimenaeus, which means Antiochus the madman. It's a play on words, you know, just behind his back. Sounds almost like Epiphanes, but not quite. All right. Um, so, what do you get from this anyway? Okay? What do you get from this? How, how do you apply this to your life? I think there's three things that we can take away from this uh, study of Scripture, believe it or not, as obtuse as it is. Number one, you can have confidence in God. You can have confidence in God that when things are destroying the accoutrements of your faith, that God is still in control. I mean, think about it. Here's Daniel seeing a vision about the destruction of his people, the stopping of his religion, and, and he is just 
sick about it. Why would God do this? If you're Daniel going, Lord, we're already in exile. I'm praying to get back into the land. So you're going to take us back there? And then we're going to prosper for a while? And then all this stuff is going to happen? Like, why would you do that, God? Ever ask God, why would you do that? Why would you let it happen that way? Why? Today's Mother's Day, right? Happy Mother's Day to you. My mother died when I was 12. Why would God do that? Why? Why? Why would, why would God take the mom of a 12-year-old boy, a 10-year-old boy, and then twins, a boy and a girl, who are both seven? Why would he do that? Why would he let it happen? I mean, if you could see that in advance, wouldn't you be bargaining with God like, can't we talk about this? Daniel's like that right now, and yet, what God is saying through the whole vision is, have confidence in me. Have confidence in me. I have a plan. I have a plan. I can assure you, and trust me, I would love to have my mother with me, lo, these past many years. No one like her. No one who understood me like her. But I can almost assure you, I would not be speaking to you right now, if she had lived. I would be, at the very least, a Greek Orthodox priest. I'm just telling you right now, there's no way this would happen. She loved the Greek Orthodox Church. And, um, you know, I mean, she's in a better place. A family with without a dad got to Combined with ours, and they got a dad, and we got a mom. Seems like God planned it out pretty well. It seems like God has the history and the future of the world under total control. So, confidence to God. Number two, remember that God is the timekeeper. God is the timekeeper. He's in charge of the times. Psalm 139 says, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You young mothers here, you know what I'm talking about. You know what a miracle it is to have the Lord begin to knit inside of you a brand new human being. And then he's got a plan for that little kid, that little girl, that little boy. Before even you thought about getting married. And he's got a plan for each one of us. God is in charge of the times. If he can handle the sweep of empires, he can handle your tiny little life. Second Corinthians 4 says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We can see that God is a pretty good timekeeper. And when he says that our present troubles are light and momentary, he means they're light, they're momentary, they're not going to last forever. It won't always be this way. It will get better, trust me. Even if you've got to wait until the end of the age, the great by and by, after you've died, you know what? It's going to make what's going on right here seem like it wasn't even worth talking about, your sufferings here, compared to the great glories that are going to be revealed in the future. So don't worry about when you're going to die. 
Does anybody here worry about when they're going to die? I mean, especially when you become a young parent, you start worrying, right? You go get the insurance because you're not sure what's going to happen to you and your kids if you die. You know what? Don't worry about it. God loves your children more than you do. And He holds the times in His hands. He is the excellent timekeeper. And when your time is up, you'll be gone. You won't stay around an extra nanosecond. Praise Jesus. I don't know about you, but I have this kind of <laughs> secret desire to be with Jesus. Not so secret. I just told you. I want to be with Jesus. Better for you that I'm here, I hope. But don't weep for me when I'm gone. Because I will have every desire I've ever wanted fulfilled. And if my reading of Scripture is correct, I will take my place at Jesus' side and begin praying for you all. We do have a great high priest who offers prayers for us in heaven, being Jesus. And if we're supposed to do what Jesus does on earth, then I'm assuming we'll be doing what Jesus does in heaven. So maybe I'll help build that mansion for you or that room inside the great mansion where you'll be staying. And by that time, I'm sure my carpentry skills will have vastly improved. If you're in a trial right now, the trial that you're currently in will not last one second longer than God ordains it to last. It will accomplish every last character-building thing He wants to do in you, and then it'll be over. Then it'll be over. And Jesus won't be a moment late. Jesus, I don't care if He tarries for 10,000 years, He will not be a moment My last point comes straight out of the passage. When Daniel had recovered, he gets up and he does the king's business. He did his job, in other words. He went to work. What does God have for you to do? This prophecy stuff is exhausting. Look at me. I'm a wreck. I'm trying to... You know, if, if you argue prophecy with people, you can argue for a year talking about the meeting. And is it 2,300 days or half of 2,300 days? Or, you know, like, what's going on? Like, you can talk about this stuff and wear yourself out. But maybe God wants you to go and clean the bathroom for your parents. Maybe He wants you to go and sweep the living room for your wife. Maybe He wants you to go and do something special for your husband. Maybe He wants you to take a special day away with the children. I don't know what the king's business is for you, but surely Jesus has something right now for you to do that you can do in full assurance without worrying that Jesus will indeed come again at the proper time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time together. Thank You for Your Word.
Teach us to be mindful of your prophecies, and yet, Lord, to do your will, your business, on a day-to-day basis. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.